welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, I'm Jared Beller, a cardiothoracic surgery resident at the University of Virginia. I'm here with Dr. Leora Yarborough, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Virginia, and this interview will focus on the management of acute right ventricular failure, specifically in the setting of left ventricular assist device placement. Dr. Yarborough, we'll begin with the discussion of a clinical scenario. A 68-year-old woman with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and a left ventricular ejection fraction of 15% was referred for inpatient evaluation for LVAD due to class 4 symptoms with ongoing inotropic support. The patient had acceptable right ventricular function preoperatively, and she underwent HeartMate 3 implantation. The patient was able to be weaned from cardiopulmonary bypass without issue, but at the completion of the case, the sternum was left open with a temporary closure device due to concern for ongoing bleeding. Due to resuscitation, which included multiple blood product transfusions, on the evening of postoperative day one, there was concern for acute right ventricular failure. At this point, how would you proceed with workup? Are there any other pertinent points related to the presentation of acute RV failure? And what laboratory or imaging studies would you want to review or obtain at this time? Thanks, Jared. So in this uh, clinical situation here, which is uh, not entirely uncommon, uh, we have a patient who's had an LVAD placed who presumably had normal RV function uh, uh, coming in, uh, but then after uh, this long case with multiple uh, blood products uh, transfused, now the concern is that potentially uh, we have RV overload. Uh, in all of our patients who we place uh, left ventricular assist devices in, uh, we use a variety of uh, hemodynamic uh, monitoring devices, including uh, PA catheters, arterial lines. Uh, we use the numbers from our, our pumps that we've placed, as well as a transesophageal echo. Um, uh, in our institution, we have an indwelling uh, uh, TEE, which we use uh, in some of our patients uh, after LVAD surgery, uh, particularly if they're left open. Um, additionally, I'll be looking for uh, other uh, uh, physiologic factors, including um, uh, signs of hepatic congestion uh, with liver enzymes, uh, decreased urine output, uh, et cetera, to, to sort of assess uh, what the most uh, common clinical scenario would be here. The patient continues to have an elevated central venous pressure of 22 without significantly elevated PA pressures. The cardiac index uh, continues to be low at 1.8 despite adequate LVAD speeds. Laboratory analysis reveals a transaminitis with rising serum creatinine and decreasing urine output. How would you likely proceed at this point? So in this patient, with decreasing urine output as well as an elevated uh, CVP and other hemodynamic parameters that that really point to right ventricular failure, if the blood pressure will tolerate it, uh, we initiate a diuresis. Uh, Most of our patients are already coming out on milrinone. uh, as well as epinephrine, and uh, already primarily with the use of uh, flilin or nitric oxide. I would, uh, just to sort of add uh, one thing, in this patient who has an open chest uh, already, uh, consider uh, evacuating any hematoma or anything else that may be present and in influencing some of these numbers. Uh, that is one of the more common reasons, I think, for low urine output that can be missed uh, in these patients who you assume have primary uh, right ventricular dysfunction. Other factors that, that are related to the the LVAD device that can contribute to uh, right ventricular dysfunction are, are the speed of the device. Uh, are you creating a septal bowing and, and therefore RV dysfunction by uh, having speeds that are slightly too high for the patient at the time? And I would, uh, using TEE guidance, uh, 
uh, try changing the speeds to see if I could influence um, uh, any septal bowing that was present. Additionally, uh, avoidance of hypoxia, hypercarbia, really taking over the functions of uh, pulmonary function of the patient can uh, really influence um, the work that the right heart has to do, uh, in including paralysis at times. In a patient that appears to have adequate right ventricular function on a preoperative workout, such as in this case, what intraoperative findings would most concern you as being indicators that the patient might go on to have postoperative RV failure? Yeah, it can be um, sometimes confusing uh, for patients who look like they should uh, have normal right ventricular function postoperatively. Um, based on their preoperative uh, right ventricular function. I think some of it depends a little bit on uh, some intraoperative techniques. Uh, if you are going through a sternotomy approach and, and really lifting the heart or applying the side biting clamp, um, you can have some injury to the, the right coronary artery or you can take some air, uh, which may influence in the immediate uh, postoperative setting uh, how the RV functions uh, while in the operating room. I think cannula placement is really important. We, we pay uh, really close attention to that, but if you're too close to the septum or uh, have a septum that's uh, likely to bow uh, in the settings of uh, turning the VAD on or to leave the operating room at low speeds on your LVAD, I think those are some indicators that you may um, have some trouble uh, in the first couple days of, of acute RV failure and also just the amount of ionotropic support uh, which is necessary to come out of the operating room is something that we look at really closely. Prior to the operation, uh, based on the preoperative workup, in what situations would you consider placing a temporary right ventricular assist device at the time of LVAD implantation? Well, I think all the data suggests that uh, the delayed implantation of RVADs in those patients, uh, they do uh, significantly worse, have worse survival. So we really do spend a lot of time looking uh, up front uh, at the patient's right ventricle, making sure that they're optimized from a volume standpoint. And sometimes this even means being in the hospital an extra week or so, getting diuresis as long as they're responding um, uh, in order to really do everything that you can to uh, maximize the right ventricular function. Um, if there's any concern at all, meaning if I try to come off pump and, and the right ventricle is struggling or I'm on uh, higher ionotropes than I want to be on, um, I'll place a temporary RVAD at that time. Uh, and the way that uh, we do it uh, generally is um, just at the time of the initial uh, implantation if we can. Are there any situations where, as a result of the preoperative assessment, um, you may deem a patient that they would be too high risk for RV failure and you wouldn't even offer them LVAD therapy for an otherwise acceptable candidate? I think there are some patients who have a very high um, risk for RV failure, and sometimes that can be difficult to determine, but if they have a non-ischemic cause uh, for their disease or genetic uh, disposition, disease states whereby ventricular failure is independent from left ventricular failure. I think in the majority of patients, the LV uh, dysfunction sort of begets the RV dysfunction, and, and most people, even if they have a degree of RV dysfunction, can um, get by uh, uh, with left ventricular support alone. Uh, one thing I can say, I think, is that all of our predictors for RV uh, failure after um, LVAD therapy probably still leave something to be desired. So there's multiple uh, calculators, um, but I think we've all experienced the patient whom they were uh, inaccurate for one reason or another. 
When I think about heart failure surgery, I think about improving patient survival, but most importantly, improving their quality of life. And there are some patients in whom their heart failure is so advanced or has been so advanced for so long that they're not actually uh, LVAD candidates anymore. And I think that some of these uh, uh, patients uh, are the ones with true biventricular dysfunction. Uh, either by genetic causes or ischemic causes, their RV dysfunction has gone on to create liver uh, problems and bridging cirrhosis. For patients with advanced liver disease uh, that's thought to be irreversible, I will not offer them LVAD therapy alone. I think they do poorly in the long run. The optimal therapy, I think, for patients who have otherwise reversible end organ disease, who have uh, true severe uh, right ventricular dysfunction that is probably independent from the left ventricle, is, is heart transplantation, and if uh, bivad therapy uh, is going to get them to a heart transplant, then I'll do bivad therapy up front. This is a really pretty involved uh, process for the patients. They're often in the hospital for a long time, and they have to be appropriately selected in order to um, really be successful through their therapies all the way to discharge after transplantation. There are some scenarios where I have done uh, BIVADs for patients uh, who are in the destination therapy group. And where I use this is in the elderly population who I believe do poorly with uh, high doses of ionotropes. I think their microvasculature is particularly susceptible uh, in their GI tract, and I don't like them to be on, on high doses of IV uh, therapies. For that reason, if there's a group who have advanced disease, but I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm counting on it being related to their left ventricle, then I'll place biventricular therapy uh, centrally up front with the option to decannulate at the bedside. And I have bridged uh, several people this way uh, over the age of 70. I think that it's important as heart failure surgeons that we use all of the tools that we have. And sometimes this is uh, mechanical devices, and sometimes this is going to be medications or a combination of them both. But really keeping in mind the end game, which is to get patients home with as few medications or devices to manage uh, for their quality of life. When tricuspid regurgitation is present during LVAD workup, how does this alter your approach? And how do you decide which patients will benefit from concomitant tricuspid intervention at the same time as LVAD placement? It depends a little bit about um, how severe the tricuspid uh, regurgitation is. In fact, it depends everything about that. Uh, if the TR is severe, then I usually will put a ring on it. Um, a lot of these patients already have leads across their tricuspid valve, which contribute to the tricuspid regurgitation. And, and some of those um, uh, leaflet uh, disturbances um, may or may not get uh, fixed easily with just a ring. I think that uh, most of the studies show that uh, TR will improve over time as you after uh, LVAD therapy, and those patients who do have tricuspid interventions uh, do worse. Um, that probably is uh, indicative of just the population in general and not necessarily the tricuspid intervention itself. Um, but my own personal strategy in this is, is to uh, repair it if the TR is severe, otherwise I leave it alone. In situations where you've decided that the patient requires some form of temporary right ventricular support postoperatively, what factors go into your decision as to what type of device you will actually use? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, the, what we have available to us now are percutaneous devices that can go through the groin. Uh, we have percutaneous devices that can go through the neck. And then we have centrally placed uh, uh, devices that we can use um, up front. We try to make that determination at the primary uh, surgery um, going in uh, or coming off uh, 
pump, whether or not they're going to need uh, right ventricular support. And I favor uh, central cannulation, um, as I described before, uh, with the ability to uh, decannulate uh, at the bedside. Um, and, and in that setting, I use a, a Centromag device. I think that provides maximal support uh, if for some reason the patient needs an oxygenator, it's very easy to splice that in. And our patients have uh, mobility, really, uh, from the time of extubation. Uh, we have used uh, other percutaneous uh, devices for uh, other types of RV uh, failure, um, and I think that those are good, but they're not necessarily quite as durable, maybe due to the either smaller cannula size or uh, propensity to become sort of uh, dislodged, et cetera. When utilizing the, the percutaneous centromag approach through central cannulation that you mentioned previously, are there any specific technical aspects that are particularly helpful? We uh, published on this um, previously, and basically, uh, if I'm concerned that there's somebody has a uh, right ventricular dysfunction that may necessitate a RVAD uh, coming out, I'll usually cannulate a little bit lower and leave the appendage uh, open for cannulation for the RVAD, and even uh, go as far as sewing a graft on the PA uh, at the time of... Um, while, while still on cardiopulmonary bypass and the patient's uh, supported fully. In terms of uh, balancing the RVAD and LVAD, that can be uh, somewhat uh, complex and, and is something that really requires specifically looking at the heart and the volume uh, status uh, on a regular basis. I think that in these patients, uh, a TEE uh, is extremely helpful. Um, and not over-circulating uh, the, the pulmonary vasculature is important. So. Um, the, the flow numbers, I think, that are can be somewhat confusing uh, just because they're not specific uh, on the LVAD. Uh, the Centromag device uh, uh, is maybe slightly more specific, but relating the two um, based on flows alone uh, is probably not the most accurate way to balance your pumps. And really, it does take a, a, a continual eye on um, blood pressure and hemodynamics and urine output to make sure that you are uh, balanced appropriately in the post-operative setting. What is your strategy for anticoagulation with temporary RVADs in place? Uh, and how soon after placement would you reinitiate anticoagulation in the setting where you're placing a RVAD after the index operation? I think it depends a little bit on the type of device that I'm using. If I'm doing a percutaneous device, uh, then I will uh, reinitiate um, uh, anticoagulation almost immediately. Uh, if it's something that's required a, a reduced sternotomy for, uh, then I may wait uh, uh, 24 hours or so just to ensure that I don't have bleeding from any other sites. Uh, typically, I think that once the, the LVAD sites stop bleeding, that it usually can be uh, reinitiated within about 24 hours. And how do you determine when a patient's ready for removal of a temporary RVAD? Yeah, I think that's um, that's an interesting question and, and more of an art uh, than anything. We do use, obviously, all of our uh, typical hemodynamic uh, monitoring techniques, but uh, turning down the device, uh, slowly making sure that they're appropriately uh, diuresed, uh, and then very closely watching any uh, urine output, uh, any markers of congestion, and uh, frequent echoing is, is important, too. Uh, when you remove these RVADs, uh, you want to remove them permanently. Um, and not have to reinsert them. And so I do think that uh, making sure that everything that you control is controlled. Well, this concludes our interview. Dr. Yarbrough, thank you very much for your insight and taking the time to share your perspective on RV failure in the setting of left ventricular assist device with us today.